back, everyone, to another episode of, I think I call this podcast something for the people, because it's for the people. I'm your host, B. Smooth, and today, my wonderful guest is a graduate student at Yale University in the nursing program, and an all-around just awesome person, Miss Kiara Jackson. Kiara, how are you? I'm doing well today. Thank you. So, where are you right now? Um, right now, I am actually in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, um, visiting my parents. Oh, great. I just flew in, flew in very early this morning for a little vacation. Oh, we, we are big fans of Milwaukee, Wisconsin here. So yeah, uh, yeah. It was a good four years of my life. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, so... Uh, let's just get started. So, tell me, where did you grow up? Um, so, I grew up um, on the north side of Chicago um, in a neighborhood called Rogers Park. And then, I would say I grew up there and also in Evanston, which is the first suburb north, just north of Rogers Park, across the Chicago um, city line along the lake. Um, so tell me what it was like. What was it like growing up in Rogers Park? Um, so I'll give a little bit of background. So my parents met from, um, in Chicago, working together downtown. Uh, my dad is a native of Chicago, grew up on the South Side, and my mom is a transplant from Massachusetts. And um, they, when they decided to get married, they were thinking of. Um, the best place to raise a family and um, kind of the unique, a unique element of the relationship was that in the 70s when they got married, um, they were an interracial couple in the city wondering where could they raise their kids, where maybe they wouldn't get a lot of looks or both people could, you know, my parents could walk down the street and feel comfortable presenting themselves as an interracial couple. Um, So they wanted to be somewhere where there was just a lot of diversity, and I don't know how they decided Rogers Park, but that's where they landed. Interesting. Well, they only had like three choices, if I know my Chicago history correctly. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. So I think in they, um, my mom grew up near the ocean, and so she just loves water and so I think that was another thing is that they just love and have always loved being very close to Lake Michigan um so finding finding us a very urban area that's still along that beautiful you know natural element that is Lake Michigan was important to them too Mm -hmm. so did you have any uh, siblings growing up yeah I have one sibling, an older sister. She's three and a half years older. Okay. So what was it like for you guys uh, in Rogers Park, I'm guessing mid to late 80s to the 90s? Yeah. I mean, I I have really fond memories. You know, I think um, it's hard to know. It's hard to know what we do with a lot of our childhood memories like I I wonder if 
I'm idealizing them just because they're in the past or if it really was that sublime. But I have great memories. Um, you know, my parents um, didn't have a lot of money and we didn't, for a really long time, we didn't have a vehicle. And so I, actually, I have really fond memories of taking public transportation with my mom and going downtown on the free days at the museums. Um, and she would sometimes take my sister and I down there, pay for an L ride, you know, back and forth. And we'd pack our lunches and we'd just have like little sandwiches. And it was just like this grand adventure. And it was just so exciting. And it felt like it was this huge trip, even though it was like maybe six or seven stops from where we actually lived. Um, I remember learning to skip rocks with my dad and walking to um, the beaches in our area and just doing that on a, you know, Saturday afternoon or evening. Um, I always felt safe. My parents had strong community where they were. Um, a lot of other couples, a lot of other kids that we'd spend a lot of time with. Um, I didn't grow up feeling very different, which I think was one of my parents' aims, was to kind of be like, we are normal, this is normal, like, um, and so I appreciated that, and yeah, we were very close to my dad's side of the family, so, you know, frequent trips to the south side for family dinners and just getting together with my cousins and things, so, um, yeah, it was a good childhood. How, what was the relationship like with, like, other kids in the neighborhood? Like, oh, so, a funny thing, uh, I don't feel like I played with a lot of neighborhood kids. Like, you know, I'm trying to think about it. Like, we definitely went to parks. I was not, we didn't have, we, I grew up in apartments, so there was no real, like, backyard and I was always accompanied with an adult. Like, that was very important to, especially my dad. Like, he would always say things like, I don't want you guys just hanging around, you know, on the street. Like, you need to, he wanted us to have structure, and he wanted us, and probably just from, like, a protective standpoint. Um, so I feel like there were, we'd go to the park, and we'd find kids at the park and play with them. Um or see if my cousins could come over, or get family friends to come over and play. Um, but I don't have strong memories of, like, neighborhood kids. They were, you know, strongly associated friends of the family. Yeah. And, yeah. Well, this is so interesting, because this, this reminds me of kind of like my childhood. I could never, like, go too far from in front of, like, um, our apartment, because... You know, I was I was basically the only child. You know, I basically had another sister. I had a sister, but you know, I was basically raised the only child. So it kind of reminded me like you can't go too far. So like my memory of like kids was just kids I saw in school. Like I saw you in school, and then I go home and do my thing. Yeah. And you know, and I don't think this was a scare tactic. And actually, since being in nursing school, I'll tell a little bit of sto of a story, but. Um, I remember my parents talking about, like, just emphasizing safety, be safe, be safe, you know, like, um, 
we always need to be able to see where you are and different things like that. And I just thought they were being hyper vigilant. But like, the city was dangerous, you know, and things were happening. Stuff was in the news. Like people, kids were getting abducted. Like those things were happening. Now, you know, to to what extent I don't know, but um, actually one of our professors brought this up, and I don't know the year now. I want to say it was the late seventies or early eighties. Um, but a, it was one of the nursing schools, maybe it was at Rush, downtown Chicago, um, a man entered one of the nursing school dorms and, um, murdered five or six nursing students, um, for a while, like, and just killed them one night and left the, the dorm and went somewhere, I don't know, and they had trouble finding him for a while, but, like, that stuff was happening in the city, and I think... They, there were a lot of benefits to growing up in the city. Like, I loved it, but I think my parents were also aware of, like, this is a densely populated area with people, you know, who are wonderful and good-intentioned and interested in building a robust community and other people who are here, and we don't know about them and we don't know what they're capable of, and we just need to be protective, so... So, you said you spent part of your childhood in Rogers Park, but then you moved to Evanston. When did you move to Evanston? So, we must have, I'm not sure the exact year, but we must have moved to Evanston around the time my sister was, um, she was entering into school. So, she must have been, she might have been six or seven. She might have done kindergarten. Mm -hmm in Chicago, I can't remember now, but I know that there was a conversation around um, being concerned about Chicago public schools, and my parents very clearly could not afford any type of private education, and wanting to move just over the city line to take advantage of Evanston public schools, um, and so that was really, I think that was the main, if not only reason. Um, why that was done. My parents were both still working in the city, and um, so that was that. Was that. So, and we literally, and we literally, so the dividing line, oh man, I don't want to embarrass myself and forget now, uh, Howard is the dividing line between Evanston and Chicago, and we literally lived um, one block in from that city line. I remember that. We lived on Brummel Street and 123 Brummel Street was the, our address, which I thought was so cool because it was like 123 Sesame Street. Yeah, it, um, it sounds like a fake address. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Um, but it was literally a block over from the city line. And there were a lot of families like that. I went to school with a lot of families, a lot of Jamaican and Haitian families. And literally, people were just, like, tripping over the city line just to make it into better schools. Um, so, yeah. Wow. What an indictment of Chicago public schools in the 80s. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> striking all the time. Striking, striking, striking. Okay. So, like 30, 40 days out of the school year. Well, I'm a CPS. I, only, I remember one strike... And it was like right before school started, but we were only mm -hmm. out for like four days. But it was like, oh. I don't know why it was so big, because like they had like news cameras 
like coming to my school, yeah. wanting to interview me, like, are you excited to come back to school? And I'm like, wow. uh, I'm, I'm eight years old, and I'm like, of course not. All the cartoons that yeah. I missed that I'm here, how dare you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what, what was life like in Evanston? Um, it was good. I mean, I... I don't, yeah, I'm like, got to be careful about what I say. I don't think I would move back there. You know, I, I visit quite a bit because um, I still have friends that are living there. Um, but I think it was a good, I think it was a good choice. I think it was really, um, a, those years there were really, uh, I, think of them as this period of time where my parents were really just trying to be strategic about this, you know, their growing family and I don't know, just doing a lot of things for the first time and how to give the best opportunities or chances for their kids and um, my dad was working full time and going to school um, and so he was just trying to work up, you know, the educational ladder and the corporate ladder. At the same time, we rented, um, I don't think my, my parents didn't buy until they were, you know, quite a bit older than their peers is what I'll say. Um, but I remember that being a really big deal. And so I just, I feel like it was kind of a period of kind of climbing and advancing and kind of navigating I don't know, the system, I don't know what you want to call it, but uh, Evanston was a good place, also fairly diverse. Um, one difference I would say is that while when while in public school, I'd say it was pretty much 50-50 um, black and white students, and then I don't know the percentages of like Latino um, and Asian American or Asian students. Uh, present at the schools, but it was probably like 50-50 um, for black and white students, but there was definitely the the sense that there was an economic divide. That was pretty clear. So then we started to pay attention to who lived in South Evanston versus on the lake versus closer to the Skokie border, you know, versus, you know, other portions of, of the city, so... So you, you kind of like were divided by like zip code instead of, uh, you know, like racial boundaries. It's like, okay, you're in this zip code, so you're at this economic level or whatever. Yeah, there was that sense. Although I would say that still students, like we tended to blend well together. You know, I don't think that it was like the kids who lived in this, this zip code only hung out with kids who were in zip, this zip code. I think there was still some intermingling. But there was more of a, like, and maybe this is in retrospect, but there was more of a sense of, um, yeah, just that, um, that there was that difference, you know, that some kids came to school and they would be wearing the same thing most days of the week. And sometimes they, you know, now I realize <laughs> it wasn't just, oh, you need to use deodorant. It was some kids couldn't get to the laundromat or their parents couldn't get to the laundromat or... You know, we're coming to school in dirty clothes. Other kids never wore the same outfit twice. 
like there were kids like that, you know, and we were, but we were all in the same classes. We were all learning together. Um, so. Okay. Yeah. So speaking of like, like school and education, what was it like going to school in Evanston or just being in school yeah. period? Um, so I, yeah, I think I've always enjoyed school. Um, I'm trying to think of what elements I like about it. I really, I think the best part of school for me has been the educators. You know, I if I think of defining moments at school, it's not like a particular subject. It's really been the teachers. Um, and those kind of just like mark my years of school. Um, so I had, yeah, I had some great teachers in elementary school, um, and middle school was so-so, you know, but I think that's just a challenging period of time socially, but I had some good teachers. I was involved in band. I played the trumpet. Um, I was staying in the choir. I was very involved with the choir, and I started to get into volleyball, which was um, a sport I played throughout high school, um, and I developed a few um, at least one or two core friendships with people that I still am in close contact with today, have been to their weddings, you know, always make it a point to see them when their children are born, like, even though we're not local, uh, even though I'm not local anymore, so. Yeah, so, uh, I, didn't, I don't know you played the trumpet, were you, how, how far along did you go with the trumpet? Um, I played for about four years, so, I could have gone further, I didn't pursue it much after high school mm-hmm. um, or beyond my, I guess my sophomore year of high school. Um, but I loved it. Yeah, it was, um, it was important to my parents. They had, had like a few rules for us um, that every, um, that my sister and I both had to play an instrument um, and that we had to try out for a sport. So, um, if we didn't make it, fine, but we had to at least prepare for and try out for a sport. They wanted us to, they just wanted us to have, like, organized activities, and, and they wanted us to be disciplined and learn teamwork and time management, and, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I started with the piano, my sister and I both started with the piano, and I somehow squeaked through maybe a year of lessons before my teacher was like, oh, you can't learn, or you haven't learned to read music. You're just memorizing what I'm doing. And I did that for about a year until I couldn't advance anymore. And uh, then I just said, I don't want to do this anymore. And it it wasn't until I think I was in fourth grade that they picked up um, the trumpet. So you you couldn't read music, so then you went to the trumpet. That sounds... I took a few years off. (laughs) And then when I was older, and I decided that I was committed to reading music, and not just sight reading, or or not sight reading, not just memorizing. Um, Because I have a pretty good ear, so I was just playing by memorization. Um, Then my mom said, okay, if you... If you commit to reading music, you can start the trumpet. So, yeah, I and I actually no, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, I was just gonna say. So I actually started on 
my hands were small, so I started on the cornet, which is a smaller version of the trumpet. And I played that for two years, and then I switched to, like, a full trumpet. Yeah, so I was just thinking, like, the, the piano is much easier to play by ear than the trumpet. So I was, oh, yeah. I was wondering, like, okay, she, she, she's not reading music, but then she goes to play the trumpet, which is much more <laughs> difficult to play by ear. Yeah, it forced me, it forced me to learn. Okay, so I know you mentioned high school, because I, I just had a conversation with a friend of mine I went to high school with, and I let them know like the most, the most I've ever been scared in my life was my first day of high school. That's the most I've ever been scared. Like anything else, like college, uh, graduate school, jobs, anything, I've, I've never, the fear of the first day of high school was the... I don't know. Yeah. I just can't describe that. So can you just describe what was high school like for you? I was really excited. I was really excited to go to high school. Um, so that's... So we're all... So in Evanston, which is like probably other... Definitely other public school systems. So Evanston Township High School, which is where I went to school for my first two years, um, is a feeder, um, I mean, it's just like, you know, it's a feeder school, so you're getting all these new students that maybe you've heard about, or you've seen at parties, or maybe at the beach in the summer, um, but you're finally all coming together, you know, it's like this great, like this great migration to this watering hole that is high school, and you're getting to see all these different people that you've never seen before, um, and it, to me, it was just, like, an opportunity. Like, I wasn't locked in. These friendships weren't socked in. Like, I was going to be exposed to these new, different people. Um, I knew I wanted to play volleyball. That was a fall sport. So I was even preparing in the summer, getting ready for tryouts, um, made the team, was with my best friend. Like, it was exciting. Um, so, yeah, I would say that first year was really good. Okay, so you mentioned that you left after two years. Why, why the change after the first two years? You're on the volleyball, and now you're, you're out of there. Something just, um, I remember my sophomore year. So my sophomore year, my sister went to college, and she left town. And that was kind of this exciting thing that now I was, you know, I had never had the opportunity to be an only child, and even though I, you know, still wasn't an only child, I was, you know, it was just my parents and me, and that was kind of exciting. Um, I'd say in, like, many siblings, like, my sister and I are pretty different personalities, and um, she is very smart, like, top of the class, um, just a high achiever all around. I forget what they call it now. Uh, it's like this, um, there's um, like an Illinois State Scholars Award or something, and they only give out like 15 or something. And I know she got one of those. I don't know. This, what do you say? And Merit Scholars was one of those? Merit Scholars? Another... Maybe. I know, it's, it's Maybe. something like that. I know, I, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, and, you know, she also played volleyball. And, yeah, so when she was a senior, I was a freshman. So there was this association that, like, we were sisters. And I think that benefited me. Maybe that was also why my freshman year was good, you know, because it was like, my sister is cool. You know, seniors are saying hi to me because they know my sister and all that stuff. Um, and then, um, yeah, and then sophomore year, things started out great. And just somewhere during the end of that fall or the early winter, something just changed. And um, I just started to feel like an outsider. I mean, I, and I think it wasn't something that anyone did to me or people weren't rejecting me. I think I, I started to realize that I was changing or that I was different. Um, I wanted to have different, more substantive or conversations with my peers, um, and that wasn't happening. I wanted to, the pressure of, like, being coupled up or being popular or going to parties or not going to parties or doing X, Y, and Z was just not of value to me, and so I didn't participate as much in, in that, and I felt very isolated, um, and I would say, um, I don't know if I would have used the word at the time, but depressed, like definitely not participating in social outings, and, you know, people would invite me to things, and I would say no, um, I just became very, I'd say very isolated, and I just remember for the end of my sophomore year, my mom would drop me off on her way to work, and I remember a couple of times just crying in the car and being like, you know, and now I think back, and like, that that's something that, like, a three-year-old does when they go to preschool or daycare, but I would just cry in the car, and I'd be like, I'm not going, I just don't want to go, I can't go, um, and so, as a family, we had a conversation about looking for an alternative um, for my last two years. And so I ended up finding, we ended up finding a place. And so I ended up going to a private Christian school in Arlington Heights for my last two years of school. How, did, how, were, those, how were those last two years? Um, a big change. I went from going to a high school of 4,000 to a high school of 1,000, but that was K through 12. A thousand students. Wow. So I think I graduated with 55 people in my class, maybe. So, so small, um, but also really good. It was, it was refreshing in some ways um, because I was having the conversations and being, like, connecting with other, with my peers in ways that I felt were substantive. I was, I had some good teachers that I felt like I could talk to just about life and dreams and everything else, and that was really important to me. Um, in general, for other reasons, those were some challenging years. Um, so it just, it felt like a sur uh, supportive environment and definitely, definitely got me really prepared for college, I think. Um, it was a much more kind of academically, in some ways they were a little bit behind just because they weren't resourced by government dollars, but in other ways, it was just, like, no nonsense, you know, like, there was no participation grade, there was no extra credit, there was no, like, it was starting to, starting to mirror what college would be, um, 
and so that was that was really good. Okay, so speaking of college, okay, you've, you're two years in Arlington Heights, and now you're going off to college. So, mm-hmm. what was when you first stepped foot on campus? What was college like? What did you anticipate college to be like? Um, well, I ended up choosing to go to a school that you may have heard of. Possibly. It's called Marquette. Marquette University. Yes, and for those of you who don't know, that's where Brandon and I met. Sorry, yeah. excuse me. And I met at Marquette. Um, and so I was excited. I was excited to, I felt like I was starting to become an adult. You know, there's this, now I can be off on my own. I can come back to my dorm at 4 a.m. if I want. Nobody's checking in on me. Nobody's, you know, I just, I felt like this was my first big launching from the nest. Um, so I was excited. I, um, Marquette had launched a... Um, new program called Community, and I think this was the we did, this was the first year they did it. But it was basically um, uh, two levels, two wings um, of a dorm. McCourt is McCormick Hall for freshmen, uh, and which is, which is no getting, longer there. <laughs> I know it's like getting bulldozed if it's not all or what are they wrecking ball to it this yeah. week. Yeah, they did it. It's I saw it. Oh, they did it. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> the beer can so is gone. I know. Everybody's like, "Oh, so many memories there," and I'm like, "I'll tell you, my memory is walking into the closet that would be my room for the next <laughs> however many months, and just like, oh my gosh, how are two people supposed to live in this space?" So, anyways, but it ended up being a really positive thing. So, community's aim was really to just get people from diverse backgrounds to live together. There was some programming around diversity and the importance of diversity, and you know, this was however many years ago where we're people are just starting to have a language about what it means to value diversity. Um, at least that's what it felt like to me. So that was the program, and I ended up rooming with um, a woman from South Korea, which was wonderful. She was great and made some really close friends with the women on my wing. So there was a male wing and a female wing. Okay, so... And yeah. So, so after... How, how long were you in community? Because I, I, I had no idea how that worked. <laughs> okay, so it was one year, and then we all said that we were like, we want to continue this. And really what we wanted was to, like, protect... The community that we had honestly built, and so we wanted protected dorm space where we could all live in close proximity still, because I think they just kind of threw you into a lottery after freshman year. You could still be in a dorm, but it wasn't like, hey, I want to live next door to this person and this person and this person. Um, So we convinced uh, some folks in administration um, for us to be in Schrader on a wing, and... um, so it informally continued into sophomore year. So community season two. Yep, that's right. So I know after you were in the community, you became a resident hall assistant. Oh, that's true. What was it like being the, the boss lady of a dorm? Did you rule with an iron fist? Yeah, so... 
I thought, you know what, I want to be an RA. I think I just, I looked up to that role, um, you know, I thought, like, that's a leadership role, that's going to look good, that's going to be, you know, on resumes, that's going to, um, I think it's also going to, I, I appreciated my RAs, I had appreciated my hall directors, and I just thought, you know, maybe I can be helpful to other students. To be honest, I don't think I was a very good RA. I really don't. Um, and I bet if you ask some of my residents, they would say, oh, she was so-so. Um, and I think it, it's really hard. It's hard to feel like, you know, I need to enforce certain rules. I need to make sure my students are safe. Um, but I also am supposed to be friendly with them and be a resource to them. Um, so I was an RA in Mashuda Hall for two years. Um, and I remember at the time, once I got that position, because it was room and board, and my mom was like, this is a big deal. Like, when you were paying back your student loans, you were going to be so glad you did this. And I really am. Like, I'm very glad I did it from a financial standpoint and from a social standpoint. But um, looking back, I wish I had invested more into that role. Um, but again, I'm still a full-time student. I'm still trying to, you know, I was involved in some different clubs and organizations, and I'm still trying to stay involved with those and having a social life and occasionally going back home. So it was it's a lot to try to balance all of that. Um, but Okay, so what, what was your, like, most, I don't want to say important, but most, most memorable experience? as an undergrad? Mm. Oh, let's see. Well, most recently, I'll tell you this, this might be funny to you. So, a couple of weeks, in a couple of weeks, um, last week, I was in New Orleans for a, the National Black Nurses Association annual conference. Okay. And, I went with one of my friends from school, and um, while we were attending some of the sessions and stuff, for some reason I just got a flashback to when BSA would go to, like, Whitewater. I don't know. We went to a couple of, like, weekend oh, retreats oh, or something, Jesus. and I just remember, like, I was thinking back, and I was like, man, I was such a goody two-shoes. I was like... No, we have to go to every single session. They're paying for us to go here. And I remember other people having different feelings about it. Um, and for some reason, I just got a flashback of that. But definitely, I think being involved with BS, with the Black Student Association, um, even though, you know, I wouldn't say that I have super close friends I don't have super close friends from from BSA. I so appreciate and look up to those individuals even now and like just following them on Facebook or sometimes when, when I'm in Milwaukee, I'll like see some people or just, um, you know, I keep in touch with Evan, so sometimes he'll give me the scoop on things happening in Milwaukee. So I'm just, that was really to just be around black excellence and to and just black thought and black leadership 
left a kind of an indelible mark on me. Other things from undergrad. Um, so that was a period of time. So my high school that I had gone to was very, very um, theologically and socially conservative. And so, surprisingly, this Jesuit Catholic school kind of loosened that conservative grip on me, which sounds crazy. But it was really the social just, that, that was the first, Marquette was the first time that I had ever linked social justice to faith. And I don't know if I wasn't paying attention in school when I was learning about the Civil Rights Movement or Martin Luther King Jr. or, you know, just like how faith infused that movement. But that was the first time for me personally that I was thinking that to say that you are a Christian or whatever faith you are, but not to be active in the world for the causes of justice and healing is not a full and whole faith. Um, and I remember um, a finals week, I think this might have been junior or senior year, I remember a finals week going out late with some friends to Chipotle. It was so cold because Wisconsin is so cold. And so it must have, yeah, it must have been, you know, winter term or something, the end of the fall semester. And we went and we got um, our food and um, we're coming out of Chipotle. They were, cl they were closing and they had, like, packed up all their food. And this uh, homeless man comes up to us and he's shuffling up the sidewalk. And he just says, excuse me, excuse me. Um, can you see if, can you go in there and see if they have any leftover food? Um, I'm hungry. And we just said, you know, that they had locked the doors and packed up all, I don't know if they had locked the doors, but they had packed up all the food. And um, he said, um, can you, can somebody just go back in there and get some napkins to, you know, so that I can sh shove them in my shoes? And he was like, my feet are so cold. And I just stood there and I just kicked off my shoes and I took off my socks and I gave them to him and I said, just use these. Because I was like, what are napkins going to do? It's 20 degrees outside. And I just, and I remember feeling regretful that I didn't, I normally would cut my burrito in half and save some for later, but for some reason that night I was being real greedy and ate the whole thing and I just was so sad that I didn't have something left to give him and I remember after that we went back to Rainer because we had been studying at Rainer library and I went into the women's restroom and I just cried I just went into a stall and I just cried and I cried and I cried um and then I went back into the lobby and just called my dad and I was just like why is the world what like this you know and like so those are things that stick out to me, if I was just to name a couple. That's kind of what you get when you go to school in a, in a city, as, as opposed to, you know, as I'm seeing now living in a college town. Mm -hmm. you, you have a very different interaction with the community. And right. I it, was, it was one time, like, I don't know, I was a freshman. And this uh, homeless guy, like, I was staying in one of the dorms, and he just, he was just like, he, uh, he just let me in so I can get something to eat. I was going to lunch. So I'm like, okay, come, 
come with me and I just swiped him in and we I don't even think I had to swipe him because he's like you don't even go here why do I have to swipe you and he just yeah. he, he probably the best meal he had that week is going yeah. even in the dorm and I just hindsight that, that was kind of risky because he could have just been a maniac but sure you know I don't know it's, it's something think, you just feel for people yeah and I think sometimes you let you just let the spirit lead and I'm not being corny about that. I think in that moment, it wasn't like, I know, I could be a do-gooder and take my sh my socks off and give them to him. But I think in that moment, it was like, if the spirit compels you, do this. And if you do this, then maybe bigger things will be asked of you, you know, to be of service. You know, I, I do think a lot about, like, Marquette's themes of, or, like, mission of, like, men and women for others and cura personalis, this care for the whole person. I do think about those things, you know, and I I really valued my years at Marquette. Were they easy? Were they perfect all the time? Were there not real problems there? You know, I'm not going to say that, but looking back on my education, I feel very pleased with my time there. And I think students had a lot to do with that. Okay, so let's go. You're You've done your four years at Marquette. Now, what's next for you after leaving? So next is, um, next is, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I knew I didn't, so I graduated with an English major, as an English major with a writing concentration. Um, love, have always loved writing. Loved it, loved it, loved it. Loved, uh, and so I'll back up and mention that my first, that I started as a pre-med major, which will kind of make sense based on where I am today. Um, yeah. So when I realized after the first semester that basically being a pre-med major would be all-consuming, because I would say that my natural giftedness at that time maybe wasn't in the sciences, um, I just was like, no. This is not how I want to spend my four years. I want to do other things besides study. I want to do other things besides, you know, rack my brain, trying to learn or self-teach. You know, I don't want to just be in lecture halls with 150 people. You know, this. I made a decision, um, and I remember my, my mom in particular, who had also been an English history double major, um, was just like, no, you need something where you're going to have a career track. She was like, try to get into the nursing program. They were flooded, and they were having to take all the same science courses, so it didn't, you know, it was like, and so there was just a lot of back and forth, and I think that's where I was just like, well, I don't know what I'll do, but, and I remember two professors um, my senior year giving such sage advice that I still think about and quote today. <clears throat> One of the, my, my favorite English professor, Dr. Christine Krieger, said, she said, I have two bits of advice for you English majors. Number one, don't ever become an English professor. Number two, she was like, just remember that for any job that you may get, you have to learn a skill set. What you do in your good skill here is to communicate well in writing and when you speak to people. And to convince them to get you in the door. That's all you need to do. She was like, for engineering, for nursing, for some of these things, of course, while you're in undergrad, you are learning these 
specific skills, and then you'll apply for these jobs to then apply those skills to. But everything else, she's like, you just need to convince someone to give you a chance. And if you can write well and communicate well, your likelihood of being able to do that is high. And I just decided in that moment to believe that. You know, and I just was not worried. I was not worried after graduation. And then the other thing was my favorite um, theology professor, Dr. Christopher Dorn. Um, I was in crisis mode. I remember we went to lunch. Um, I graduated. I had to take a summer class, so I walked in May, and then I graduated, I think, that July of my fourth year. And we were getting lunch, and he just said, you know, I just was like, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do with my life? Um, my boyfriend at the time was going off to a Ph.D. program, and um, I had been putting pressure on me, like, oh, you don't have a job. Like, what are you going to do? Are you just going to kind of float? And I just, I knew I didn't want to get a salary job because I didn't want to be committed to any place for two years, three years. And I didn't want to be in a job for six months and then leave. I felt like that was not right. Um, but I wasn't, again, I wasn't worried. And he just said, don't be worried about, you know, what you majored in or just, you know, these four years here. All that an undergrad degree proves is that you're able to learn. <laughs> and, you know, he's like, you're not specialized in anything. You're not an expert. Like, you're 20, what was I, 21. And that took a lot of pressure off. Like, I think for some people that may have made them more anxious. But for me, it was just like, oh, you're right. Like, all this is is showing that I can learn. Um, and the rest, the rest will come. So I think that there was this moment where everybody's feeling impatient and anxious upon graduation. And maybe rightfully so. I knew I could go back and live with my parents. You know, I knew I could do that. And I, if, I, if no money was coming in, at least for the six, first six months before my student loans started coming, you know, payments had to be repaid, I'd be okay, you know. But for other people, I know that's not the this, this, this situation that they were in. Um, so for the first, so I graduated, I decided that I wanted to, um, in between my years of college, I had been working at temp agencies and working at Fortune 500 companies doing admin work. So I was like, let me just do that. It was really good money. Um, you know, it was hourly, no benefits, but at least it was, like, solid income. I did that for six months. Um, then my boyfriend and I had a pretty substantial breakup in that it was just, I was doing a lot of reassessing about my life, and I just felt like I needed to get out of Dodge. So one day I was at my temp job, and there was an ad. We'd get these emails, email alerts of things that were happening within the agency, and a job posting came up for a job at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center in Huntsville, Alabama. Okay. Um, and I was like, this sounds interesting, and this is, in, this is far away from here. So you had to take, like, a little preliminary test, and I was like, at least I'll take that test. I'll just see if someone calls me back or writes me back. So it was like this mathy, sciencey little pretest, and I took that, and someone called me and asked if I wanted to do an interview, and... The, I guess what happened was I just, I was extended an offer and decided to move down there and do that. So I worked as a um, camp counselor and like tour guide for the museum and 
yeah, they have a space camp, essentially, and um, worked with high school students, which was amazing, and they, even though I was trained, they knew so much more than I did. A lot of them were preparing to go to places like FIT and um, Embry-Riddle. They wanted to be aeronautical engineers or go into the Air Force, um, and so that was really amazing and rewarding, and then just getting to live in a different state and just explore that was um, interesting and good, too. Okay. So what was Alabama like? Because I have family in Alabama and basically all over the South being a grandchild of the Great Migration. So what was, the, <laughs> what was, what was Alabama like? Yeah. So similarly, um, I'm also a grandchild of grandparents that came up to Chicago um, in the Great Migration, they um, were in Alabama, and um, I'm, I'm going to forget now the name of the town where my grandmother grew up, but they had they met at Tuskegee. Um, my grandfather was teaching there, and my grandmother was a cook there, and so they met in the cafeteria, and eventually got married and decided to come up to Chicago. But, um, so, the U.S. Space and Rocket Center is in Huntsville, which is north, like very north in the state. Um, and I had been to Alabama a couple of times before because my grandparents had a farm there. And so I had been through a couple of times, um, but I felt like I was much younger. I didn't get, I didn't have a car while I was there, so I did have a roommate, and sometimes she'd let me borrow her car. We'd go out, or as I made friends, we'd kind of go around, but we really were only, we only stuck to Huntsville, um, and it's actually a beautiful city. It's really nice. They call it the Rocket City. There's, um, Redstone Arsenal is there, um, which is, a, like, an, I don't know if it's an engineering firm, but I think they make rockets, or at least engineer rockets there. And, um, yeah, I felt like people were friendly, although I didn't really interact with the public that much. Um, I was definitely aware of, like, more racial dynamics, even among camp counselors. And I was kind of like, what's going on here? Um, there, I remember there was, like, a lounge, a common area with a TV and the computers where people could hang out and sometimes people would just be teasing each other and I'd be like, oh, this would not be cool up north. Like this, whatever's happening between people here, this is interesting language. I mean, never like, I don't know. I can't even remember, but I just remember a couple of times feeling uncomfortable and like, oh, I'm in Alabama. <laughs> um, and this is an interesting, when I would call my grandma and she would ask me, what I would do on my days off or, you know, how I liked where I lived, I'd say. Um, there was a little, they called it a mountain. It was called Mon, I think it was called Mon Monsanto was the name of it. And a friend who worked at the place introduced me to it, and a couple of times we'd just go walking there. And I remember talking to my grandma on the phone, and um, I told her, yeah, you know, sometimes I'll go, to the library, or I'll do this, or I'll run this errand, or, you know, and sometimes if the weather's not too hot, I'll go to Monsanto, and I'll just walk 
a little bit. I love to walk. Love it, love it, love it. So I was like, you yeah, know, I'll just walk. There's a paved road that's closed off to cars. And, and I remember her getting quiet on the other end of the line. And her just saying, you go by yourself. And I said, oh, sometimes, you know, if a friend can't go with me, I'll just go by myself. And another kind of long pause, and then her say, you know, you just need to be safe. And, um, yeah. And I was like, why did she, you know, and I just paused for a moment, and after I got off the call, I was like, you never did that. Like, you didn't go off into the woods as a black person in Alabama. You didn't do that. Like, that was not safe. And so in that moment, I was just like, wow, you know, two generations later, this is something that I don't think very much about or I feel I feel good enough or safe enough to be able to do this, and this could have been meant death for people in my grandma's generation, especially probably, I don't know, if women were, would be more inclined, but this, if it weren't death, it could be an assault, it could be some type of attack, it could be anything. Yeah. You know, this is the, in the age before cell phones or anything. Um, so. Yeah, if you actually just thinking about it, there was a book I read in my master's program. It's called The uh, Dark End of the Street, which which goes through, like, the history of, like, black women, like, during, like, Jim Crow era and just the amount of sexual assaults and rapes. Yeah, yeah. And it goes through kind of, like, the history of, like, Rosa Parks before, you know, joining the boycott, how she was a, she would investigate on rapes by uh, of black women that police wouldn't prosecute. So, mm-hmm. so if you if you want to just have any free time and uh, if want to learn more about that, it's called the Dark End of the Street. I forgot who wrote it, but that's the name of it. Okay. Yeah, I'll look it up. Thanks. Yeah, so I'm using my degree for something. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So. I know after Alabama, eventually you got to our nation's capital. So that's right. That's right. So even before I had, even even before I went to Huntsville, I had found out about this organization in DC called Sojourners. Um, it's a magazine, but it's also a nonprofit organization. And this was an organization that resonated with me because it was. Um, so the, this message of social justice and faith had been articulated from like a Roman Catholic perspective, mm-hmm. but I was I considered myself, um, you know, Protestant, evangelical Protestant, and was wondering, is there anyone articulating that in this in these circles? And so the founder of the organization, um, Jim Wallace, is someone who articulated that and got pretty political with it. He wrote a book. Um, called God's Politics, and it just talked about um, just like it was. It came out at a time where um, uh, right-wing politicians were starting to align, or churches were, and pastors and leadership were starting to align themselves with right-wing. Um, politics and really touting that as this is to be to be faithful to God you vote Republican you vote along certain you know you vote pro-life or you vote this way about immigration X Y and Z 
and he just like dashed that to pieces. Um, and so anyways, I found out about this organization, was kind of perusing their website and found out that they had an internship program for one full year. Um, and just that, you know, it was 2008, so it was an election year. And I was like, it would be amazing to live in Washington, D.C. during an election year. And then for a new presidency, um, I, let me just apply. And I had always been kind of intrigued with Washington, D.C. For a while, I was like, when I was floundering in senior year trying to find, you know, what am I going to do after college? I had applied for Teach for America, and my top city was D.C. I'd only been there once in my life, but I was just kind of like fixated on D.C. It was D.C., New York, Philadelphia were my top three. Um, and so I just thought, yeah, and it would be cool to be in D.C. So I ended up getting um, offered a position there. There were seven of us in this program. We, we lived and worked together. Um, it was an exercise in living in community, so the shared living. We lived in one big row house in the neighborhood of Columbia Heights in northwest D.C. And, yeah, I worked in marketing for the magazine. Got to see Obama. I was not in Chicago at the time, so all you Chicagoans got to see him when he came there. But um, that was, that I saw nice. pictures. <laughs> yeah. Did you get to go to that? Yeah, that was. I I, I kind of because of getting back home, I regret. I regret going. I'm like I could have watched it. Uh, <laughs> mhm. Oh yeah, but but um. And then get to go. I got to go to the inauguration then that January, um, which was just thrilling. The whole city was just a buzz. People were so nice to each other after he got elected. People just were so hopeful and excited. And, yeah, the city was charged. It was just like electricity was running through people for, like, the first month. Yeah. It was great. It was great to be there. I know, but <sighs> I have hope. So, yeah, I know. <laughs> so, so out there, the year of your internship, what was after that? So, within the first six months of being in D.C., I knew I wanted to stay in the city. So, um, 2008, 2009 was very exciting in some ways, and it was also terrifying because this is also when the bottom fell out and things were terrible, like the economy was terrible. So I remember as part of my marketing job, I would do like pick, pack, and ship stuff, materials to people, and I'd be in the, the mail room listening to NPR, and they'd just be giving reports of, you know, GE is laying off 50,000 workers this week, and it was just company after company, week after week, of just, like, stories of just people losing everything. Um, and so I was, of course, panicking and, like, okay. Um, and this, this internship was not a, a feeder program, so it wasn't like, if you intern and you do well here, you'll get to stay. Um, but I knew, I liked the organization enough, and I thought if a job, if some jobs become available, I'm going to apply and see if I can stay at this organization as well. I feel like they had really cared for me um, and mentored me and been family for me at a pretty kind of crucial time in my life, and it felt like a good place to stay. So I did. I ended up 
getting a job in the development fundraising department and um, actually doing ad sales, which was interesting. And um, ended up staying there for maybe a total of three and a half years, including the internship program. Um, and then after the ad sales gig, I knew I wanted to stay in the nonprofit sector, but that I wanted to do development work, like proper development work, fundraising, advancement. And so I transitioned to a much larger organization that did direct lobby on um, around hunger issues and food food issues um, domestically and international. It's called Bread for the World, mm-hmm. and I worked there in major guests. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I know while you were in D.C., you became interested in just women and maternity. Where did that come from? Mm-hmm. So, you, t- you know, I mentioned the spirit, and... I really, when I talk to people, I'm just like, it really is, it was a random call. And it took, it, you know, from start, I mean, it's, uh, it's evolved. But I would say from kind of the first call to going back to school to become a midwife, it was, a, there was, there were 10 years in between that. But that first call came very randomly, being bored, sitting at my computer, like, oh my gosh, this is what it means to be an adult. And I was just sitting in front of this monitor, and all of a sudden, this idea just popped in my head to work with women and babies. And I remember going to lunch at my organization um, later that afternoon and sitting around the table and talking to people and just saying, yeah, so I think I'm going to work with women and babies. I don't even know what that means yet, but I just feel like I should. And there was a man sitting at the table, and he said, you should talk to my sister and my mom. And he was like, they're doulas. And I was like, what is that word? Like, I don't even know what that word is that you just said. And he was like, well, I don't really know what it means either, but I, but it's basically working with women and babies, and it's birth stuff. And my mom is a registered nurse and a doula, and my aunt is a registered nurse and a doula, and my sister's a doula. And I'll just connect you. Maybe you just want to talk with her. Um, And so I met with her and had a conversation with her. And that was the first time that I began to see birth as a justice issue. Um, And to say, oh, this is something that I want to commit a lot of time and energy and resource to. Is to somehow making... To, address, to somehow address this injustice in the world of birth. Um, and that would kind of shape and form and fill out a little bit more over the next 10 years. But that's basically how it started. So um, I pitched the idea to the organization to do an issue on birth as a justice issue, and they agreed to do it. Um, and uh, somehow looped up in that, um, the woman that I met with and her mom said, we will train you through Doulas of North America, which is probably the largest certifying organization for doulas. We'll let you come to this for free. Um, you know, you can bring someone to take pictures or whatever, and if you 
write about this or if we can have a few magazine copies that'd be great and so that's really once I went to that training I was hooked I was like this is amazing I can't wait to attend my first birth okay. so did that uh, this uh, being a doula did that in inspire you to go back to school yeah it did um, so I it took me a while to kind of become a regularly practicing doula. Um, so I was still working nine to five jobs for those next, for all of my years in DC. Um, so I had to try to strategically get clients during times that worked well for my work schedule. So I thought of, oh, this quarter, there are no conferences, there are no board meetings, so I could probably, if I needed to randomly call out from work, I can do that for a birth. Um, I wasn't really upfront about my doula work, I mean, sort of, kind of, um, usually about the ones that would be on, like, the weekends. Maybe I'd say, oh yeah, I got to be at a birth this weekend, um, but I didn't, I was only taking about four births a year. Um, so I just felt like it wasn't, it wasn't really like a side job that I didn't want any employer to kind of think that my attention was divided between two jobs, essentially. So, yeah, so then by maybe 2015 or 16, things really ramped up, um, as far as taking a lot of births. Um, and then it was 2016 when I, a lot of things happened in 2016, but most kind of what I call the, um, divine, the divine tap came in August of 2016 when I, reported to a family's home, normally as a doula, a doula is basically, just to give people some background, a doula is a labor support person, and they're providing labor support for the family, for the woman, or for the birthing person, um, and emotional support, physical support, um, spiritual support if that's needed, but we're not doing anything medical that is outside of our scope, so I'm not checking her heart rate to see if she's, you know, if her heart rate's too low or too high. I'm not checking to see if her, she's dilating. I'm not um, giving, I'm not saying, oh yeah, that doesn't, I'm seeing blood in the toilet or on this pad. That looks like, that doesn't look like very much. Like, I'm not giving her medical advice. I'm just supposed to be a supportive role for the process. And increasingly, for women of color, doulas help navigate once we enter the, the hospital, so, or wherever they're birthing. Um, if you think of someone in their natural element, when we're home, we're comfortable, we can control things, things are familiar to us, we can dim the lighting, we have access to our own food, we're in our own bathroom, um, you know, this is, this is our, for, for some people, this, that's our haven, that's our safe space. When you transition a laboring person to the hospital, you relinquish control. And I'm not saying that in a, in a bad way, it's just the fact of the matter is you're relinquishing control 
to a system and an operation, um, and you lose some of your you lose some of your power. For some women, they lose a lot of power. For other women, they can have people present with them who can help protect and defend them in the system that is often not challenged because we hold doctors and medical staff up in such high regard. So that's another role that maybe more recently doulas play in a hospital setting. Okay, so, so as your oh. births were increasing, uh, what what did you did you want to did it did you want to start getting into okay I've been in support system but I want to do more. Yes, so I so I forgot to finish my story. Okay. <laughs> so August August 2016, I show up working as a doula for a family that's birthing. I'm in D.C. Um, that night at work, uh, I was at my office building. We're on the 12th floor, blocks from the Capitol, and I'm looking out of these floor-to-ceiling windows, and this gnarly storm is rolling in. I mean, these clouds that just look amazing. They're beautiful, but it's also just, like, so ominous. And I knew I had to do a client due soon, and often if it's kind of a rumor, but it's also there's science behind it that when there's a big storm that comes, storms, full moons, babies come. And and for storms, it's often like the barometric pressure drops, and sometimes that can induce um, uh, the bag of waters to break, and that can trigger active, more active labor. So I'm just thinking in the back of my mind, like, I wonder if she's going to go into labor tonight. So I get home, rest up a little bit, she, sure enough, she texts me and says, I'm in labor, it's, you know, it's pretty light, I'm going to try to sleep through the night, I'll be in touch with you in the morning, um, but I, you know, I keep my phone close to my bed. Wake up to a phone call, maybe at two in the morning, and, um, it's her husband, and he's like, she's, you know, we're making good progress here, I think you, but I think you should come, I think we need to go to the hospital soon. Um, and prior to that, she, he had called earlier in the night and I had just not heard the call and he didn't call back. So in, in the past she had said, I need doula support. Last time I didn't want any, this was her second child. She's like, I didn't want my husband at all. I just wanted to be with the doula. Like his presence was just irritating me and I just wanted to be with the doula. But this time was completely different. This time they had been laboring together for a long time. They were doing great. They were really in sync and tune. And they, she was calling me just to, so that we could all meet up as a group and head over to the hospital. Um, I get there and she's like, this is different. This is painful. I don't know why this, I feel wild, what's going on. And I'm like, let's just, you're just doing great. Let's see how you're doing. And I like to observe. When I first show up, I just like to observe. I'm like, I'm not here to interfere. I'm not here to be that thing that gets in the way of you in this normal physiological process that is unfolding, right? Because pregnant people are not sick. They do go to the hospital, but this is not an illness. This is a normal physiological process that happens in people with uteruses who birth. So, um, 
So I just watch for a while. I just want to see about how far along she is, if we really do need to go to the hospital now, or if we can afford to wait a little bit longer. And I remember kneeling in the dark with the bathroom light shining in on us a little bit, and her standing in her bedroom floor, just standing on the floor, and she puts her hand on my shoulder, and I look up at her face, and she's squinting and, like, scrunching her face and holding her breath. And I just look up at her, and I'm like, are you pushing right now? And she says, yes. And I say, no. I was like, no, you need to not be pushing right now. I was like, we need to go. So um, we called the paramedics. I mean, to kind of sum it up, we called the paramedics. The paramedics are on their way, but this baby is coming. And so I just tell her husband, her husband's freaking out. He's like, we got to go. We can't have this baby here. I will carry you down the stairs. And she was like, very calmly, I'm not going. I'm not going down these stairs. No, nope, the baby's already here. So she just, like a strong goddess of a woman, she stands up and pushes this baby out. I have, I have a towel. I don't have anything else with me. I don't have gloves. I don't have... I'm like, get a towel from the bathroom, I don't know, like, and I'm just like, what have you seen midwives and obstetricians do at other births? That's what I tell myself, and I'm like, just do that, you just have to do what you've seen. You need to make sure the mom is not bleeding, you need to make sure the baby is crying. Like, I knew those were the most important things. So the baby comes out, of course he's not crying, he looks like a rag doll. He looks like, you know, lifeless limp. And then this mom... The baby, normally babies come out and they're still connected to the placenta through the umbilical cord. Well, this cord snapped for some reason when the baby came out. So this mom is pouring blood out of this cord from her placenta. This baby is not, no longer has an oxygen source from the blood, so he needs to cry soon. And so I'm working on this baby. I grab this cord. I'm holding it upside down. I tell the dad to go take the mom over and go sit over in the corner. And I'm just like, I hope that, that I need the paramedics to come. Eventually, the baby perks up. I slap him on the back. It's like I'm trying to be gentle at first, but then I'm just like, we don't have time. And I start popping him on the back, and eventually he starts sputtering and eventually cries. Um, but that ne- I was high as a kite for like 48 hours after that birth. I remember the baby was probably born at 5 a.m. We all we ride in the ambulance to the hospital. Everyone is fine. The baby looks great. The mom looks great. And then I look at my watch, and it's like 8 a.m. And I'm like, I could go to work today. I shouldn't miss a work day just because I was at a birth. So I go straight to the office and, like, change my clothes. I had brought a change of clothes, go straight to the office, and I'm just buzzing. I am buzzing all day long, and I'm just like, this is who I am. I was so calm. I was very comfortable. I mean, I was scared, but, like, it was like, I talk about it as, and this is going to be a reference that not everybody will get, depending on how old they are, but have you seen The Matrix? Yes. Okay, the first one. So, you know, toward the end of the movie... I don't know what exactly happens. I feel like he's visiting the Oracle, and he, like, leaves her apartment, and then he walks into the hallway, and everything is now in Matrix. Like, the walls are those green numbers. 
and he like sees everything in code now and then one of those agents shoots him and he starts like dodging bullets yeah. you know he's like doing that bendy thing where like he can't be shot he can't and I just feel like in that moment and in that birth it was like I was seeing code you know I was just in this other world this other zone where I could function, even though I didn't actually have the skill set, technically, to do this. But I was just like, I can do this. I can, this baby will be fine. This mom will be fine. Like, I know what to do. And I just remember, like, I was like, of course, anyone would have done this. Anybody would have caught this baby and tried to resuscitate it and get everybody. But then I remember the dad in the corner. And I remember him standing and his leg just, like, shaking out of control. And I remember the panic in his voice. And, you know, weeks later when I thought about the birth, I just was like, if I had not been here, dot, dot, dot. And there are, mil there are a million variables of what that outcome could have been like. But there's the question of, like, could the dad have delivered the baby? Would he have resuscitated the baby? Would the mom have continued to bleed? Would the paramedics have gotten there in time? Maybe if I hadn't come or if they hadn't waited for me, they would have gone to the hospital and been fine. You know, so you just always ask these questions. Um, but it was that moment where I was just like, I need to become a midwife. And I reached out to a midwife mentor of mine who worked in D.C. And I told her my story. And she was like, you know, I have a similar story of how I got into midwifery. And she said, midwifery has a way of finding its recruits. And that's a quote that I think of all the time. So that's, that, that was the moment. That was your, your calling right there. That was my calling. Okay. So, okay, when did, when did you start looking up programs? Because, and if you hear a noise, that's just me. I'm switching out my headphones because I don't like the way they sound. So let's keep talking. I'm switching out headphones. I can still hear okay. you. <laughs> okay. Um, so I had been looking at programs and getting pretty discouraged because, you know, these are master's programs. Essentially, the ones I was looking at are called graduate entry programs. So they're three-year programs where you come in and you do an accelerated RN, and then that's your first year, or your first 12 to 16 months. And then you come in for two more years to do your master's specialty levels or specialty work. So when I graduate, I will be an advanced practice nurse. Um, so those are the programs I was looking at. And obviously they have a lot of science prerequisites. I didn't have those. So I had started in on those that summer. So that summer of 2016, I had begun to take some prerequisite courses. So not only are they expensive, you know, I was taking them at the community college, but they also just take time. I was still working full time. And some some places, I, you know, I need up, on the up, like upwards of eight classes um, to just be eligible to apply. Um, and I was like, well, you know, it's going to take me however long it's going to take me, but it's probably going to take me about three years just to get to a point where I, or maybe at least two, where I can start to apply to some of these programs. Um, and then through the grapevine in D.C., so at that point, having done a number of births and 
gone to a number of conferences and things. I had met with um, a number of the certified nurse midwives, especially black certified nurse midwives and certified professional midwives in D.C. and um, knew I wanted to become a certified nurse midwife. So a certified nurse midwife is basically the only type of midwife that functions in a hospital setting. Um, certified nurse midwives have prescribing rights. Um, like I mentioned before, we're uh, advanced practice nurses, so we're RNs first. We're nurses. Um, we're not ob obstetricians. Um, we don't do any form of surgery. Our model of care is kind of believing in normal physiologic birth, but being prepared for any type of, like, anomaly or urgent situation that might come up. So I know I wanted to become a CNM. And then I just started looking, like I said, I printed out a whole list of all the CNM programs in the U.S. And my husband and I looked through all of it, and we were just like, nope, wouldn't live in this state, don't want to live here, don't want to live here. So we kind of just narrowed it to, like, the states that we were, would actually be interested in relocating to, and then we, I kind of narrowed it down from there. Then um, a few, I had met with a couple of midwives just voicing my discouragement about it taking so long just to get to school, only to be in school for three more years. And um, I just was feeling eager. And one of them said, you know, however long, however long it takes, don't worry about it. The women will still be there. Um, but then one person, after our lunch meeting, had sent me a message and was like, hey, I just had lunch with another nurse midwife in D.C., and she went to Yale. And she said Yale has no prerequisites. They're the only program in the country where you don't have to have any science uh, classes coming into the program. You just need your bachelor's. And of course, they're looking at your resume. May They're looking for experience. They're looking to, to know that this is really something that you want to do. They're looking at, and, and Yale also advertised, we're looking at your essay, which we had to write this two-page essay. And I was like, how am I going to convince them to accept me in two pages? Anyways, so I thought, what the heck, I'm just going to apply because that's what I can do right now, and I'll still keep taking my classes and uh, work toward that. So I applied in November of 2016, so just two months after that accidental home birth. Mm -hmm. And then in February of 2017, found out I was admitted. Oh, wow. That's a quick turnaround. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so... So you started the fall of 2017? I did. Okay. I call that, yeah. I call that my stutter start. Okay. Okay, so what does that mean? So, um, so I began the program in the fall of 2017. And, um, was, um, yeah, had decided, um, my husband and I had saved up a lot of money and wanted to do, um, you know, we thought we're going to be really locked in for the next three years. We're going to um, do, let's do a cross-country road trip. 
you know, let's like visit all of our friends and family because your schedule is going to be insane by the time you come back. So we did that. We traveled for about three months, um, went back to D.C., um, packed up everything. That was really, you know, an emotional transition. I had been in D.C. for eight years. He had been there for 11 um, so many formative things happened in that city, and specifically, and I had been in my house for seven years, um, so that was hard. Um, and then we moved to New Haven, and um, basically, we hit the ground running, and the program started, and went from zero to a hundred. Um, it is an accelerated program, but it's hard to know what that actually means until you get into it. Um, I think when we first began that fall term, we're taking five classes, and that includes a 12-hour-a-week clinical um, where you're at the hospital doing um, work with patients. And that first semester, I just had a really tough time. I had a tough time on the first round of exams. Um, and I think it was being out of school for a decade and in general reorienting myself to the sciences and then also wrapping my head around this idea that all that matters here are points on the board. You know, so if you can't perform well you know, we're taking these exams, multiple choice exams on our iPads. So if you can't take these tests and figure out, get in the minds of your professors and find out what matters to them, given all of the content and all of the courses you're doing, um, you're going to be in trouble. And I found that I was. Um, the way our program is designed, they, um, you have to pass with a certain score average in each class. And if you don't, you're dropped from the program. Uh, and you have to begin again from the very beginning. So um, I stayed with the program up until the end of December. And then based on my calculations, realized that in my pharmacology course, I was not going to get that average. Um, I would have had to have gotten a perfect score. And I knew that was not going to happen. I just wanted to be realistic. But I finished out the last few weeks and I was told, you know, as long as I withdrew from the program, I would only have a withdrawal on my record and not a fail. And I really didn't want to fail. Um, so I withdrew from the program um, in December of 2017 with the aim of petitioning to return um, if, if I was granted that. Okay, so there you're, we're in 2018, so... What are you thinking now after you withdrew? Um, this is absolutely terrible. This is embarrassing. This is fulfilling stereotypes of students of color. This is unnecessary, really. I mean, I felt like, given the price of education in the U.S. This is absolutely absurd. This is this is devastating financially, um, and I actually had a friend who was in the class above me. I remember going for a bike ride with her, and she just said, "Don't 
she's like, don't let this devastate you and deflate you. She was like, this is all just monopoly money anyways. And, you know, I tell a financial advisor that, and they probably faint. But in some sense, that gave me some perspective. You know, I was just like, am I really going to let... I mean, the problem is not... The problem is not me. The problem is the cost of education in the United States for you know for higher ed. That's the absurdity. That's the error. Um, and uh, yeah. So, anyways, I it was a really hard season. It was a really hard season. We were new to the city. Um, I then had to scramble and try to find work, but then I was like, if I'm going back to this program, I'm going to be back in the program in eight months or seven months, so I'm not going to, like, look for a really good job because I'm just going to leave it by the time I've been trained. Um, and then, you know, I was living in the city, and I saw my classmates out on the street. I'd walk to the grocery store. I, you know, I was doing nannying. I decided to nanny which was really good because children are very therapeutic and healing. And so I would put my little balloons and you'd see your classmates on the street and you just felt like a loser, honestly. Um, and so I had, to, I had to really beat back a lot of those feelings. Um, and people would say things to me like, you know, everything happens for a reason and, you know, You'll, you'll see why this happened and, you know, as time goes on. And that's really hard to hear. You don't want to hear that. No. You know, that's really hard to hear. And I remember someone else responding. I think this was on Facebook. Somebody responded and they were like, you know what? Maybe this didn't happen for a reason. Or, or this can be tough right now and that's okay. Like, you don't need to be convinced that it was a good thing. You know, it could still be a terrible, sad thing. But as, I mean, as the months went by, I watched how, so I say this, one of the, you know, one of the names or identities of God that I see most in my life is God as Redeemer just like this redeeming of time, this repurposing, or you think this was waste, you think this was squander, and it wasn't, you know, like, um, you thought this was just a big pile of dirt, good for nothing, but actually it was full of seeds that feed the birds and feed people and whatever else, you know, and I just, you can't always see that until you start to move forward, and I just was like, I'm going to be grateful I'm going to be thankful for anything that happens. I'm going to know the limits of my own control. If I get a chance to come back, you better be sure I'm going to knock it out of the park. Um, and then I watched as God redeemed that time. I published a magazine article. I ran a marathon. I fundraised to return to school. Um, I covered the debt from that previous year with fundraising. Um, where other things happened. I read a ton of medical humanities books. That was great. Um, basically, I just tried to overcompensate for not being in school. But it was a rich season. It was a really rich season of life. Um, and I could rest and regroup 
and know what I was in for coming come that next fall. And so in February, I found out, or in January that year, I found out that they were, you know, I could return. You know, I needed to outline a study plan and a plan for being successful that following year. And so then I, I came back. So I just finished, in July, I just finished my first year of this three-year program. And in a few weeks, I'll take the NCLEX. Oh. And that's, that is the board exam for licensure for registered nurses. And so hopefully by the end of August, I will be um, a nurse. All right. All right. So I guess just to wrap it up, just, uh, uh, just tell me what, what are your plans for like the next, next year? Wow. Hmm. That's a good question. Um, so now that I've been in, so Yale's in New Haven, Connecticut, now that I've been here for a, two years, I want to be more connected to the community here. So New Haven is kind of like, Yale wants to be New Haven. Okay. It, 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 it does, it kind of gobbles up buildings, gobbles up land, um, Yale does not pay taxes, um, and there's a lot of like resentment there, and there's this university, and on the out edges and outskirts, there's a lot of poverty, and there's a lot of, you know, where there's poverty, I feel like there's healthcare crisis, and so I do want to somehow get more involved. Now that I feel like the toughest year is behind me, although... I'm not so sure of that, but I just think now that I kind of am in my groove, I feel like I have the capacity to do a little bit more community-based work. So I'm not sure what that will look like, but I maybe that might mean getting involved with the Healthy Start there. Um, yeah, so I'm going to have to figure that out. Um, I will be a teaching assistant for the Maternity and Newborn course, which is um, a course that I took my this past year. So that will happen in the spring. Um, I want to start thinking about um, just harm reduction in patient care. You know, I think I'm, I've realized how easy it is to treat patients poorly and really prevent them from wanting to come back to get care. You know, if they have that initial access to care, um, I find that many, um, many midwives are telling us that often pregnant, pregnant women will come in for prenatal care, and that's their first time back into care since maybe high school or middle school. You know, that there's this big lapse in people just getting basic health care for whatever reason. Some of it might be insurance issues, but a lot of times it may not be. It may be somebody disrespected them or someone, you know, didn't take their concerns seriously. So thinking about what type of practitioner I want to be, because I will be a primary care provider, um, which is a big deal, and that's a lot of, it's a lot of responsibility. Um, yeah, our campus is located in Orange, Connecticut, so we're not where the... Yale College is, 
So there's a part of me that wants to continue to kind of like get my money's worth at Yale and just stay connected to what's happening on that main campus. So with the African-American, um, or the AFM, they call it the AFM house, um, or just lectures, distinguished speakers that they bring. They brought in Dorothy Roberts last year. I went to hear Roxanne Gay speak. Um, you know, just amazing people come through there all the time. So I kind of want to take full advantage of that. So those are my plans. All right. Thank you so much. So I guess transitioning, uh, this is, you know, whatever you want to talk about for this session or you just want to ask me some questions. It's up to you. Okay. Um, some questions that other people have asked in the past or what are the types of questions that folks have asked? Uh, well, they've just asked me about, you know, about my life, what are my opinions on certain things. Or, mm -hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah, or, that's good. Or, you know, <laughs> just, we just, I think one topic we discussed, uh, emotional intelligence. So that was one, that was interesting. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, so maybe I'll ask you, are you currently, do you want to get political? Do you want to talk about politics or? It's whatever you want to talk about. I can talk about anything. Okay. Um, thoughts on this upcoming presidential race? Yeah. Have you been watching any of the? Or following any of the yes. debates? Yes. What are I've, some of your initial I've, impressions? I've been following some, and I think the media is, again, failing at their job. Because mm. uh, of the way they're covering uh, Marianne Williamson. Mm -hmm. Like, it's the same way they treated Trump. You know, it's like, it's like oh, they think it's just a novelty, but then... The next thing you know, the novelty's destroying the country, so. Yeah. And, like, I, I think because she says, like, real, real new-agey things, that you know, like, oh, she's all cute, but, like, I've, I've read some quotes. She has some very dangerous thoughts uh, about, like, anti-vaccination and curing cancer and AIDS with love. Mm. And I, 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 I agree, you can use love with medicine. <laughs> yeah. 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 Mm. Um, do you get, is there a point in the, uh, I don't know if you call it like the election cycle, where you get more involved? Like I know some people are like, don't talk to me. Like they've maybe made a few donations to people, but they unsubscribe from those candidates' emails because they're like, no, don't talk to me about August. I'm not thinking about this until. Yeah. Yeah. Do you wait? Yeah. Do I you narrow down a bit? Yeah. I kind well, I, I actually, for the first time ever, I've actually donated to a candidate, so. Me too. Yeah. Actually, I think I donated to Obama. Yeah. Well, I, I couldn't donate. I was extremely poor with Obama friends, so I couldn't give him anything. <laughs> Mm -hmm. uh, so, but I, 
I know where I'm leaning, but I'm going to wait until uh, after Iowa. Because after Iowa, well, really after September, they're going to get rid of these 10 people. Because they're not going to qualify. Right. And then after Iowa, that's when the people who who shouldn't still be in it get out. So after Iowa. So hopefully, hopefully my girl's still in it by then. Yeah. studies or how has it so far and if it hasn't how do you think it will oh, well, not, not just like our healthcare system but I'll say like health that's with my research how it connects is, is that yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah or just stuff you've that's learned stuff. about in, in your PhD program okay so well my research is basically I'm going on about uh, I'm researching public housing in Chicago and I'm kind of doing a comparison study of like public housing projects and urban renewal and just how how race and location and access to things including healthcare are dictated by where you are and how much wealth you have so that's kind of where it where I met with that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's a big thing. Um, I'm like disappointed to say that often, and I'm not sure what what the reason is, but often we're having many of us students, and not just students of color, but white students also will raise their hand in class and just say, um, you're asking this patient to come back for a follow-up test or three follow-up tests, but did you know that they basically borrowed money to get on this bus to then catch the train to catch another bus and to pay a babysitter to get to this initial appointment? And if you can't, like, you need to be able to do something for them that day. You know, like you can't, this idea that like, oh, just have them come back or we'll just run these different things or yeah, you actually needed to fast for your blood work but I didn't tell you that so now you have to come back another day just to get your blood work. That those things, the access is huge, a huge barrier and it's not access is, it can be physical, it can be physically accessing a building but it can also be, you know, other forms of access. And oh, just something I noticed as being on campus is the cost for if students, if they, if you aren't on your parents' insurance, and you have to mm -hmm. use like the university's insurance, they their coverage sucks. They have to pay yeah. so much out of pocket costs, and they're already their students. They're already pretty poor. If they're not. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm looking at my, as a graduate student, because we have a union. Mm -hmm. So my, my, my health coverage is excellent. Like, I don't, wow. pay, I don't pay a dime when I go, because I'm a pretty a healthy person. So stuff I get yeah. is, is preventative care, so it's covered. Sure, sure. But what they have to cost, just to get, like, they need to get certain shots and 
they have if they're not covered they have to pay for it they have to pay out of pocket and if they don't pay then they can't re-enroll so if you can't re-enroll yeah. then you're you basically lose the whole semester and so, yeah 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 i think yeah thinking about the elections i'm definitely paying attention to stuff folks are saying about health care um, I mean, I feel like the people who lead the conversations decide what what people will care about because they're choosing the topics. But um, that's definitely a big one. But um, yeah, I don't know if I have any other questions off the top of my head. Well, I guess we can uh, go towards my last three questions that I have for every guest. What okay. was the last book you read, the last okay. film you watched, and the last song you listened to? Mm. Okay. Well, I'm currently re reading Dorothy Roberts' Killing the Black Body. Okay. Um, let me think of the last one I... You want to know the last one I finished before that? Sure. Um, I think, I gotta think about that, because I read so much for school, but I'm like, I need that outlet of non-school text, you know, books and stuff, so, um, I will go, I'll get back to that, because I'm looking, because I write them all down, and I'm going to write the one you suggested down. Um, and then the other one was the last movie I saw. Yes. The last movie, I'll just say the last movie, I, can I say the last movie I saw in the theater? Sure. Okay, so I saw If Beale Street Could Talk. Oh, I love and, that. Oh, maybe it was Us. I don't know. Well, I'll say them both. So, yes. I'll, I mean, I'll say If Beale Street because it, like, was an experience. And I was very touched. The music was amazing. I'm a sucker for a good soundtrack, like... The movie could even be trash, but if the soundtrack's wonderful, um, yeah. So that was just that was great. And then the last song I listened to. Oh, so I recently moved or was in the process of moving, and a friend came over to help. Um, and I haven't seen the movie yet, but she was playing the New Lion King soundtrack, which is amazing. So we were listening to that. And if, I don't know if it's still showing in theaters because it stopped. I talked about this last week. The Last Black mm. Man in San Francisco is... Yes. I saw a trailer. It is. And I was like, oh, I want to see this, but I don't want to see this. That's why it's taking me so long to get through Dorothy Roberts' book. I'm like, I want to read this, but I don't want to read this. But tell me. It's, it's just amazing. And in... It makes you look at gentrification, just not like people like leaving an area, but the soul leaving an area, leaving the neighborhood. Yeah. What comes in yeah. and just the, how the character changes and the, and it's it's never the same. And I just because I I grew up in Bronzeville, so yes. there's a yeah. there's a lot of character there. And mm -hmm. It's slowly gentrifying but because Chicago has a much stronger black 
political force. It's not changing as quickly as other areas like San Francisco, Brooklyn. But yeah. still, I don't want that character to change because what comes in is usually bland and it's 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 like going from soul food to dried out chicken. It's just not yeah. the same. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's perfect. I mean, that movie's very timely given your focus. Yeah. Studies. Um, so the last book I read and finished was, I'm just looking, because I write my books down when I write, when I finish them. Um, have you heard of David, David Goggins? Yes. Okay, I, I finished his book, Can't Hurt Me. Oh, what did you think? So, um, it was good. I mean, I like, I like a good pep talk. I mean, and that's basically the book is just like, don't, and I needed that too. I just needed to be like, don't limit yourself. Like, you just need to be reminded that you're excellent. And, and that was one of the things I'll just say really quickly that when you realize you're on a path or you're destined for something or that thing is bigger than your ego, you just keep it moving. Like, you don't stop. You don't, like, hiccups are hiccups. They are what they are. At the end of the day, you show up the next morning. And I kind of had to coach myself into that because I'm now in a very elite setting where people are defined by their achievement. And so if they're defined by their achievement or their excellence or perfection, then they're also defined by any failure or misstep or, you know, whatever. And I remember walking down the street in New Haven and seeing someone uh, and that was in my program. This was when I was taking that break from the program. And she said, hi. And this is someone I had, had multiple conversations with and interactions with during school. So this was not like a loose acquaintance, but sort of more of an associate. And she was just like, we made it a little bit of set, uh small talk and then she just said how are you doing and I looked at her face and there was pity all across her face and I was like oh I was like I don't I don't feel bad I don't feel bad about myself like it is what it is a few months had gone by I was feeling healthier I was rested I was you know feeding my mind well feeding my body well really active like and I just was like, wow, for some people, this would have been the end. This would have been the end. They would have left town and not come back, and it would have just devastated them. And I was just like, that's not me. And now that gets to be a part of my story, and hopefully an encouragement to other people. Um, and I think especially for black people who are trying to enter uh any industry or any discipline or work environment where they know that they're so poorly or sorely needed but there isn't much representation we cannot we cannot afford to not be successful and that can be a really bad thing I mean that's where chronic stress comes in and burnout and everything else but that to me that just doesn't feel like an option I'm just like no these these women are waiting for me and I've already been a year delayed. 
you know, I'm, I'm going to make it come hell or high water. So if anything, it's just like my resilience just like magnified by 100. That's great. And Kiara, thank you for spending time with me and discussing yes. this. Very inspiring. And I hope all of those who listen that you are inspired and you can listen to this on SoundCloud, on Spotify, something for the people, all one word. Apple on iTunes, we made it to iTunes. Oh, something for the people. Amazing. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me yeah. and for inviting me on your show. Um, that's no problem. And I hope uh, maybe in the future, when you have downtime, maybe in the, at the end of the fall semester, we can interview again. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Talk about. I'll, I'll have topics by then. I'll have t real topics. I'll be. I'll get better yeah. at this. <laughs> No, it'll be great. It's already good. I really like it. Yeah. All right. I like that. That's what I like. Yeah. All right. So, once again, everybody, thank you for listening. And as always, please be good and drink your water. Small on the endless round is the same.